the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode I'll be chatting with Jason Vanderscave, Chief Operating Officer with Softiron. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Mate, great to have you here. And what we'd like to do is kick things off by if you can tell us about your background and uh, also give us an overview of Softiron. Yeah, sure thing. I'd love to. So I've been with Softiron for 10 years, uh, which is almost from the beginning. Uh, and I've been based in California for that entire period. Uh, before Softiron, I spent a bunch of time in Silicon Valley, uh, working on a number of small startup companies. Uh, we were specifically targeting uh, special forces groups. So we built custom electronics for very specific missions, uh, things like satellite communications, a little bit of underwater. And that's really where my background is. So before moving to the US, I was uh, with JFD in both Australia and the UK. I worked on underwater breathing systems uh, that have made their way into service with both the Royal Navy and the Royal Australian Navy, uh, and also did a little bit of work around um, capability for Army maritime operations, so water operations for, for the Army on both the east and the west coast of Australia. Uh, at Softiron, we build the products that underpin the next evolution of IT infrastructure. And what that means is we build on-premise infrastructure for hosting private clouds for both defense, uh, intelligence communities, and also for uh, enterprise as well. And so we're really a halfway house between uh, sort of the old on-premises infrastructure that we used to have, uh, which we just used to call IT infrastructure before the cloud existed. And then we have public cloud. And when we think about people like AWS, uh, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud Platform, and we're really there to provide a, a halfway house of people who either have information that they don't want to share and put into the public cloud or uh, information that they want to be able to use the public cloud really as a utility. So we're all hearing a lot about cloud. As you mentioned, some uh, big name players out there. Uh, everyone's realizing that most of their data is up in the cloud, but uh, there's also this concept of edge versus centralized. So can you give us an overview of cloud computing and the benefits of edge versus centralized processing in that cloud and how to assess the optimum balance. Uh, where do you set your processing up? Where is it best? Do you have it all in, this, in, in the cloud base or do you have it on the edge or a bit of both? Yeah, so as a starting point, cloud computing is, is really just a great way of rebranding what we've had all along, which is core IT infrastructure. The difference, and I think the thing that really makes it a cloud, is the idea that it's generally somebody else's infrastructure and it's consumable as you need those resources. So you're not tied to a fixed amount of resource. You need more compute, you can do that. And the best example of that are the, the large vendors. And when we think about uh, core or centralized processing, it's really those large data centers that may be onshore or offshore uh, that we can scale up and use the elasticity that they provide for centralized processing. As you mentioned, we can also do that on the edge. And the edge is an interesting one because there's sort of the near edge, and we can talk about that a little bit in a defense context. And then there's sort of this more traditional idea of the edge. I think the best way to think about um, the edge versus centralized is if we take a use case like a streaming platform. So a streaming platform obviously has a whole ton of content, someone like Netflix, and they have all of this content and it has to live somewhere. But then they have... Uh, 
uh, a subset of that content that is in really, really high demand. So when you go to Netflix and it's those five top shows, well, they want you to have an amazing experience of those five top shows. And so rather than every request for the latest episode of whatever is, is in that list, going all the way back to the centralized data center, they want to put that a little bit closer to you. So that's where we get these edge environments. And a good way to think about that is at the bottom of a cell phone tower uh, or a mobile phone tower, uh, I should say, uh, we might have a really small data center, something the size of a 20-foot C container or, or a couple of 20-foot C containers. And that's going to have some very, very high-performance equipment in there, and that's going to serve that to you. So whether you're looking at it on a, a mobile device, whether you're at home with a TV, that content's going to get served to you and probably your neighbors in a really short amount of time with really low latency. And that's sort of a good way to differentiate between the edge, which is the stuff they want you to get really um, fast access to things like Instagram, TikTok, all of those are going to live. A lot of content is is at the edge, whereas the centralized core is going to have that sort of breadth of historical information. So you notice this as a user, you might be flicking through a website or flicking through social media. Some things load super quickly. They're probably being served from the edge. Some stuff is going to take a little while to dig up. So that photo that you took in 1999 that when Facebook <laughs> was whatever it was, it takes a little while. Well, that's probably in a core data center sitting on a spinning disk. And that disk is probably even asleep, has to spin up, get all the way up to 7,200 RPM, and then it's going to serve you the photo photograph that, that you've been looking for. Okay, so that's that's a really good description of, uh, of centralized versus edge and so on. So that's all very well and good in a commercial environment but defense and security and sovereignty and things like that, that makes it even more complex. So how did SoftIron first enter the defense sector and what were the challenges that had to be resolved? You're absolutely right. It's a lot more complicated once you get into a defense environment. So we were really lucky. Um, we got an opportunity to collaborate with the 196th Test Wing out of Eglin Air Force Base uh, here in the US. And they have a really interesting project where they have data pods that they put onto F-16s. And those F-16s are basically a, a development test fleet uh, where they will test all sorts of you know, new instrumentation, avionics, um, weapon systems. And what they want to be able to do is record the flight data and then be able to analyze it. And they came up with a system of essentially a data pod that lives on the aircraft. And while the aircraft is being turned around, so they're refueling, they're maybe changing pilots, they're re making tweaks, they pull these data pods off and they dump all of the data. And it's a couple of terabytes that comes out reasonably quickly. And then they want to take that information and they send it out to all of the different folks that are going to be working on that, whether it's the contractor, so it might be a big defense contractor like a Raytheon who might want that test data. It might be something inside the Air Force. It may be somewhere else. And so their technology suite that they put on the aircraft used a lot of common technology to the products that Softine was uh, supplying. And so it was kind of a bit of a match made in heaven. And we were able to really show them how they could uh, use cloud-native technology, so technologies designed to be used at massive scale, in the way that they were. So they run Kubernetes, as an example, inside the, the data pod. We could then mount those Kubernetes containers, uh, take the data uh, that they've been accumulating during the flight, and then push that out from 
the local base all the way out to core data centers sort of around the place. Um, from a from that perspective, it also led us into an engagement with defense industry. Uh, and so we were able to move from just dealing directly with the US Air Force to some of their key suppliers that are associated around the, the aircraft. I think from a challenge perspective, you know, at the time that we, we landed our first account with uh, the US Air Force, we were a reasonably small company. Even today, we're still sort of under 100 people, uh, reasonably small company in that respect. And so those are a lot of the concerns is I think defense has this uh, paradox, which is they want the most cutting edge technology, which generally comes from much smaller companies. But at the same time, it's all about risk. And so there's a huge risk if you invest and engage massively with a really small company. And so what we did through that process was we really did little baby steps. So what we've now got installed in not only the US Air Force, but our large um, defense contracting customer is we started small and we've been able to grow and and those accounts sort of continue to grow. And I think that's been a really great uh, path for us. And it's something that I've seen work for other uh, sort of new entrants into defense industry quite well, which is you know, everyone wants the massive contract. You know, everybody wants a, an SEA number or whatever it is. Um, but at some point, you've got to start really small, right? You've got to start with with maybe not even one-tenth of one little bit of, of an SEA or a, uh, one of those big numbers. And that, you know, just grow into that. I, I think in Australia, the thing that we've done that's maybe a little bit different is we uh, engaged on a grant basis. So our first engagement sort of with Department of Defense was through the Sovereign Industrial Capability Program. And as a result of that, um, our, our application, we were successful in 2021 receiving uh, a Sovereign Industrial Capability Grant. And that was to build a manufacturing site uh, for the products that we build currently in California. And and at the end of last year, we were lucky enough to have uh, the Assistant Minister for Defense uh, the honorary Matt Thistlethwaite come and inaugurate that facility for us. And in the first half of this year, we will be manufacturing all of our appliances in Australia. Um, and it's the first time that that type of appliance has really been built built in Australia. So completely different tact. Um, the, you know, in the US, we've engaged as a as a as a direct vendor. Um, and I think in Australia, what we've done is really established ourselves as a capability provider um, with the intent that. It services the rest of our business, uh, and you know, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> yeah, in Australia, it seems a lot of the smaller companies operate with a prime uh, subcontracting through. Is, is that an option that you're looking at for defence work down here? It absolutely is, and we've got some uh, news that we'll be announcing probably towards the end of the first quarter of of collaborating with a very large prime in that basis. And you know, that's back to this idea of from a risk perspective. You know, defense has a has a really big responsibility. They spend an awful lot of taxpayers' money, um, you know, probably the most, uh, and they don't want to mess that up. And I think there's there's examples of where that's gone bad. Look, even with with primes, but definitely with small companies, there's that risk. And so, you know, from a from a diligence perspective, sometimes it's it's frustrating being on the the receiving end. I guess if if you're the company and you, you sort of really feel like you have something to bring to the table. But I think objectively, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not just happening in Australia, it happens globally. And that's why we have these really large primes. And I think it's it's all about that. It's, it's about lining up with that right prime, or in some mm-hmm. cases, multiple primes to be able to deliver the, the services and all the products that defense need. 
Now, being an American company, how have you gone with Australian clearances and the need for Australian citizens to obtain those clearances? Uh, does that mean you've had to recruit a number of Australians to make all this happen or have you been able to leverage the, uh, the, the ties between the US and Australia to help? Yeah, so interestingly enough, we're actually a UK company. Um, uh-huh. So we are an embodiment of AUKUS. So we're a UK headquartered company, <laughs> and then we have uh, sort of central center of gravities uh, in the US, and then obviously now in Australia. Um, the other thing that's unique about us, and we sort of joke about this internally, is you can never tell where anyone in Softine is either physically located or where they're from, uh, because they've we've got people all over the place. So. We were lucky enough as part of the Sovereign Industrial Capability Grant to uh, be brought into the Defence Industry Security Program, or DISP, uh, which is is a huge enabler um, when you start to look at those clearances in particular. Um, we were fortunate enough to not only be accepted into the program, but I had an old clearance that was able to get reactivated from my time in Australia. And so that was really sort of a starting point. And now we've gone through that process of uh, uplifting our own clearances and then looking to uh, recruit inside, uh, you know, sort of specific boundaries of either folks who've got clearances, although they're harder and harder to come by, uh, or really what we've taken a view on is to bring people in and then uh, basically support them and sponsor them through that clearance process. And certainly from our manufacturing facility perspective, um, everybody that will be working on the manufacturing floor in that facility will hold at a minimum a baseline clearance. And then we've got some folks all the way up to uh, some of the higher clearances, which just facilitate some of those conversations. Um, I think the good thing in in an IT perspective, even with defense, is at the core infrastructure level, um, you're able to have a lot of the conversations and do a lot of the the planning at an you know it's fundamentally an unclassified level. Um, what goes on there can quite often be classified or very highly classified, and where it goes um, and physical access to it. But certainly from our perspective of of getting going and being able to get those initial deployments and initial um, products into defence. We, we've not had to worry about that too much. It very much gets pointy at the the operational side, as you can imagine. Totally. That's a really good insight there, Jason. Thank you so much for that. But uh, continuing on with the defense aspect, uh, going back to the cloud, protection of data and storage, processing and transmission, this is all critical stuff. Uh, the whole concept of sovereign data, we want to make sure that if we've got Australian data, it's not hosted offshore, all these things. So how are cloud solutions able to provide this protection as compared to an in-house data centre? Yeah, so obviously the level of information, uh, the type of information and where that information is stored is of key concern to defence. Uh, that probably goes without saying. And I think there's a number of approaches that we see uh, primarily in, in Australia, but Globally as well, there's sort of some interesting backdrops, which is there's the very large what we consider hyperscalers. So when we say hyperscalers, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, fundamentally they fit into that category. Um, And we've seen uh, certainly at least two of those uh, hyperscalers have established uh, facilities in Australia or a number of facilities in Australia, and they've gone through the appropriate security requirements sort of outlined by ACSC and and, and elsewhere that allow them to host sensitive data 
Um, and they generally do that in secure enclaves that, you know, physical separation, only clear personnel can go in there. Uh, and then they, they tie that into uh, the defense systems. The second thing that we've seen really emerge in, in Australia is this idea of a sovereign cloud. And we've sort of got a number of sovereign cloud providers. And from that perspective, they're not hyperscalers. They're generally Australian-owned uh, businesses. Uh, again, they're building data centers or using space inside data centers that uh, are terrestrial to Australia, so that data isn't leaving. And then from their perspective, um, they're also managing those facilities with cleared personnel. And so it's a slight nuance in um, their customers, I guess, is the hyperscalers really want to sell cloud storage and cloud computing to anybody. Um, and then they, they segregate out to have um, secure enclaves for, for the government, um, where the sovereign cloud providers really aren't that interested in hosting you know, your or mine uh, photo collection um, because they've got a lot more requirements you know, so they the entire facilities are secure. They've got only clear personnel. Clear personnel generally get paid a little bit more than your average IT admin. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, it just makes more sense for them to only deal with the big departments and the departments that then really, really care about it. Um, you know, I think compared to an in-house solution, it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, I have an opinion that maybe more of that information should be kept in-house from a government perspective. I think one of the things that we've seen is a large amount of outsourcing that's happened across the IT industry. And so that's a real challenge. We're seeing huge hiring sprees around cyber in defense and obviously uh, ASD and, and kind of off the back of Red Spice, you know, the, the sheer number of folks that they're looking at hiring. It sort of gives me hope that actually some of those things could return un, under the control of defense because I think there are specific use cases where you can actually really leverage that technology, but you've got to really understand it and manage it yourselves. And so I think there's probably this halfway house. I mean, uh, I think there's a th there's a good theory in technology, which is it's like a pendulum, right? It, it goes from one side to the other side. And we've seen this with cloud computing. It was like everything was on-premises and then everyone put everything into the cloud. And then the reality is it kind of anneals somewhere in the middle. It's not always perfect. It's, it's maybe biased one way or the other. But this pendulum kind of settles down and, and that's generally what we do. And if you look at technology, it looks like it moves really quickly. It actually doesn't. Uh, it moves reasonably slowly because it has to start with silicon innovation or you know software language changes. And we sort of get to this spot. And I think the same thing is likely to happen, or I hope it will happen, around how defense takes control of, of its data, which is we've gone from you know almost indigenous uh, to the defense force when really it was the emergence of that. Wow, that got complicated. We were maybe focused on other things. We outsource it all. Um, and then, hey, actually, we need to start getting more control of this because especially if you want to start thinking about offensive cyber um, or just being able to keep all of this information, it probably makes sense to start to keep it closer closer to home or you know, with very, very trusted partners. And, and I think you know, the, the current RFIs that are out there at the moment for secret cloud are starting to, to sort of indicate that where, hey, it might not be fully defense uh, force personnel, but um, definitely this idea of it should be in Australia, run by Australian companies, uh, and, and at least you know those Australian companies 
uh, ideally should have uh, some equipment or some software that's been created in Australia as well. That w- that would be sort of the home run, I guess. Indeed, and thus setting up your uh, fabrication centre to uh, create your products here on soil. So tell us about HyperCloud and what is it and what is it that makes it unique? So HyperCloud is sort of hard to encapsulate nice and, and briefly because it, it's so much at, at one level and then it, it's all about sort of radical simplicity. So one of the things that we've seen emerge is the ease of use of a cloud. So you go to Amazon, you punch in your credit card number and you can just start clicking away and spinning up instances and creating storage and doing compute. And that's been something that we've never really had an easy way to do uh, on-premises, in private cloud environments. And that was really the, the sort of massive goal that Softime wanted to tackle was the ease of public cloud, use, scalability, elasticity, flexibility, and consumption, but in a secure on-premises environment. And so to do that, we really had two vectors, which is we had the software vector, obviously, and then we had the hardware vector. And the thing that's unique about the underlying hardware within HyperCloud is Softine is the only company in the world that designs, manufactures every piece of hardware ourselves. And at the same time, every line of uh, software that we don't write ourselves, we compile from source code. And so that provides this massive amount of transparency. Um, it gets us away from the idea of the, the big hack where maybe chips were put on boards in foreign countries that we don't like. Uh, it negates this notion of there being backdoors programmed into the software where data might egress that we don't know about. We can just see the traffic egress. But it also does a really powerful enabling thing, which is if you own both the underlying hardware and then the entire software stack that runs on top of it, you have this ability to make living with your environment, living with your private cloud significantly easier. And so a one-line example of that is how do you manage updates? So we've all become preconditioned to Patch Tuesday, everybody's favorite <laughs> day of the week, when all of the patches come out and yes. every IT admin you know, looks at each other and goes, oh my word, what are we going to do? And if you've got hardware from a multitude of vendors and within that hardware, there's delineation of certain components that might come from different manufacturers. So you think you buy this one model server from this you know, large multinational server vendor. Well, that motherboard inside that server may have been built in two different factories depending on which one you buy and that might have a different BIOS. And so whilst the end delivery is the same to you, You might now have multiple software systems to patch, whether it's firmware drivers. And so you end up with this situation which goes, oh, wow, I have to upgrade this box, wait for it to come back online, wait for the environment to settle. Now I'm going to upgrade this box and do this process. And so we end up with maintenance windows and then we have to tell everyone you can't use MyGov this weekend because we're doing an infrastructure update and all of those types of things. That is obfuscated from you when you use the public cloud because to you, you just keep going and clicking and doing all of these things. And in the back end, there's a whole team of people running around a hyperscaler data center hoping that the, <laughs> you know they maintain their five nines and everything works. And so there's this idea of building the cloud and 
we've been pretty good at building clouds as a kind of industry for a while. Um, Hyper-converged infrastructure was sort of the thing that that made that. Um, You could build small clouds quite easily. And then there's this idea of living with the cloud. And if you want to scale your private cloud environment, which to be honest, we probably all should unless you're a small lawyer's office, Um, if you want to be able to build a sovereign cloud, you're going to need to be able to scale that. And so that means you've got to make it really easy to live with the cloud. And this is really the core of what HyperCloud's able to do. So it can scale infinitely. You just keep adding nodes. Uh, It's self-aware. The nodes are stateless. So when they get plugged into the HyperCloud network, they identify themselves, initiate and sort of instantiate within the environment. And then from an update perspective of maintaining that, because we're writing and compiling every piece of software, whether it's a device driver, whether it's a board management controller, whether it's the HyperCloud operating system, the cloud itself is able to update itself. So you get a release from Softine every three months or thereabouts, and you say, right, today's the day. I want to upgrade to that. And what's going to happen is it's going to look at what resources are being used can I move those resources over to a different place? So if I've got one physical machine that's running 10 virtual machines and I want to update it, I'm just going to not let any more virtual machines start until those 10 are all shut down, they're on different machines, and then that can basically be taken out and it can be updated. And so you have this idea of I'm not running around with a thumb drive, like, oh, which version is this? patching that one, making sure that happens. It can all sort of happen by itself. And the idea is that happens seamlessly and it doesn't require IT specialist skills. So we'd say this idea of you can build a hypercloud that's the size of half a rack in half a day um, and you don't need any specialist skills. You don't need to be a Cisco CCNA. You don't need to have done a million other courses. You just need to be an IT generalist. Um, it'd help if you're pretty tidy on a command line but you actually don't need to be because there's a complete user interface that allows you to do that. And so this idea is where we've had customers and we've seen in the industry people move, oh, it's too complicated, we can't afford people, we can't find people. We're trying to make that very easy. So you get to an environment that's easy to manage on your your turf and sort of on your terms as well. Sounds pretty cool. It's I love the uh, plug it in and it announces itself and everything flows through because that's always a bit of fun introducing a new host into a system. So uh, you mentioned Kubernetes before. You've talked about virtual machines on hosts and so on. What operating environments does HyperCloud support and how much effort is there? For instance, say I've got a VMware cluster running a Windows domain, mostly Windows, a couple of maybe Linux and, and such on there as well. How would that go about coming out of that data, that data center in my building and getting into a hypercloud environment? Yeah, so from a what environments can we operate in? Uh, obviously, containers and, and virtual machines are sort of table stakes, uh, if you like. And so we can support both of those, whether it's uh, Kubernetes and we have a, a CSI driver for Kubernetes. Um, we can also uh, support uh, VMs, um, and we have a migration tool from VMware VMs to be able to run them uh, inside HyperCloud. We can also go down and do bare metal provisioning, and this becomes interesting in the context of um, classifications uh, within the cloud, is we can actually pin resources to a tenant. So physical machines 
uh, can be pinned to a specific tenant. So if the ATO doesn't want the Department of Home Affairs to be um, using their physical equipment for whatever reason, um, you can actually do that separation within tenancy. So not only on a software perspective, where obviously the tenants can't view each other's data, but you can actually do it all the way down to a bare metal provisioning. And then we can also do uh, things like Firecracker and a few other sort of emerging um, technologies that are coming out of the public cloud. And the whole thing's orchestrated sort of, you know, in code uh, infrastructure as code. Um, so using things like Terraform to be able to architect that. Um, you know, as far as how could we move information, so if you had a large VMware estate, for example, and you realize that you're going to need more than the host limit that that is um, is uh, a byproduct of the way that VMware environments exist and you, you sort of go all in on, on HyperCloud and deploy that, we're able to migrate all of those VMs over. So we have a, a, a tool that we built for our customers that allow them to take those existing VMware virtual machines, whether they're Windows, Linux, we have a Solaris VM, we can do Mac OS, and sort of the whole uh, whole variety, and, and be able to move those across into HyperCloud and, and be able to maintain that, that infrastructure um, and, and really keep going from there. And then there's some sort of interesting things without diving too technically into the weeds of how you actually access that HyperCloud infrastructure. So it's a single network address, it's a single port, um, it's very, very easy to, to integrate into existing systems. We can put inline encryption as part of that. We could throw a tack lane and we have, for example, put multi-level access control uh, on top of some uh, high side environments here in the US. And so it's not only the living with the cloud, but it's also integrating with it and, and not creating all of these layers of complexity, uh, being able to run virtualized security appliances, so virtualized uh, firewalls, those types of things inside HyperCloud um, that allow you to, to consolidate. And I think that's a really big piece of what we're um, hoping to show defense in particular, but also we show this to the enterprise, which is you have all of these disparate systems. You know, This one's for the accounting department and this one's for this department and those guys can't access whatever. And you know, someone bought something from vendor A and something, you know, the next department bought them from vendor B because they got a better deal because they missed out on the first deal. All of those sort of nuances that happen with the IT industry of being able to say, hey, we can just build a cloud. Um, there's a single cloud environment that's, whether it's in your actual building or whether it's inside, you know, a hosting provider like Equinix that, caters for all of that. It's got secure multi-tenancy. It's easy to live with. It's a single vendor solution, all of those sorts of things. And it can host your VMs or systems, whether it's Windows, Linux, Solaris, if you've still got that. Um, <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> and of course, it's all secured. It's from the bottom up. It's known. It's from a single vendor, as you said. So it makes your whole um, iWrapper assessment a lot easier and you've got that security and encryption from end to end and across all the layers. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that the the software in particular was written really was, you know, secure by design. We use the NIST standards as sort of the guiding principles for writing that, which obviously when we get to um, the sort of new version of the ISM that we're all, you know, waiting on, uh, where it's it's more tied to NIST standards, it's, it's even more so. And, you know, the IRAP example is, is a great example. Right? If you're trying to, Get an I, you know, an, an environment I wrapped, and you've got five or seven vendors, uh, and you're having to get information from all of those vendors 
uh, with varying levels of success and um, <laughs> yes. desperately looking at, you know, how we can facilitate that program. And I think, you know, the, some of the partnerships that we're forging in Australia at the moment will, will really solidify that of, of, of making sense of the, the madness, if you like. <laughs> well, mate, we've come to the end of the hardware and the software and so on. We've talked about the cloud and so on. Let's wrap up this discussion with one final question, and that's I'd like to get your observations and thoughts about the future of information gathering, processing, storage. We've got an increase in state-sponsored cyber attacks. We've got the rise of AI and machine learning and the potential disruption even from quantum computing. What are your thoughts after all your experience in defense, industry, security, IT? Where do you see things going over the next two to five years or beyond? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a really interesting time to be in the industry. And, you know, I'll, I'll start with quantum so I can make it quick, which is, you know, I think everyone's sort of predisposed to, to talking about post-quantum encryption as, as sort of being, you know, the huge thing. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is there's sort of the quantum arms race primarily between the US and China. And, and I think that's predicated on this notion that, you know, whoever gets to quantum encryption first, will therefore sort of own um, the post-quantum encryption world. I think what's always interesting and sort of touch on it briefly is everyone thinks that technology moves really quickly and quantum is a good example of that. But if you look at some of the technologies that still exist, I mean, most of the insurance in the world runs on mainframes. Um, IBM's releasing new mainframes. Um, and a lot of that is tied to there's just a huge amount of effort required to transition stuff. And, you know, we're not going to have Zoom running on a quantum computer anytime soon. <laughs> um, because it also doesn't make any sense, right? And I think there's there's that. There's this allure of new shiny technologies. And I think the real risk is all of the older technologies, you know, uh, industrialized PCs, things like PLCs that are vulnerable to, to state-sponsored cyber attacks. You know, I'm less concerned about air-gapped environments being compromised as I am about power grids being compromised, uh, water systems being compromised fuel pumps, traffic lights, air traffic control, all of these types of things, you start to think about um, where state-sponsored cyber attacks could really hurt. Yes, stealing state secrets is is one of them, but it could be debilitating if, I don't know, you grounded every, every aircraft in the LA basin. As an example, um, so I think those are you know those are interesting. We, we'd be remiss to not talk about something like Chat GPT um, and this sort of rise of, of um, machine learning and, and sort of that level of intelligence. I mean, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I think the world is grappling uh, today with with how to deal with that, and probably because some students are uh, smashing out some essays in, <laughs> in record time. But I think yep. there's really interesting applications, and and it'll be about you know, looking at what what happens with that. And I think it's probably going to bring the topic of regulation um, maybe to the forefront of, of how some of these technologies are made available. I think for me, the thing that's really exciting is around the ability to create alternate environments that take away the need to do things in, in the physical world. And I think in a, in a defense sense, when we start to look at like simulation, um, there's a lot of things that you know, you would previously have to spend millions of dollars a year on ammunition to make sure that people are sort of match fit, if you like, whether it's, um, you know, doing CQB training, which is obviously not without risk, or whether it's just regular infantry. Um, obviously, the ability, 
like very expensive aircraft to have more people flying them. I think, you know, autonomous vehicles in, in any sense. Those for me are the really exciting pieces where I think, you know, we've really only just kind of touched on. Um, and if you look at, you know, drones and UAVs is sort of an interesting one. They were sort of Gulf War Two, right? They were actually autonomous drones being flown around. And yet everyone only sort of thought that they started getting used in Afghanistan. And there's a huge period of time between those two things. And then so, you know, all of those things starting to come to the forefront now of, of how we can do more things by putting people in less danger. And I think from a technology perspective, and you know, to tie it to what we do is when I think about things like edge computing and the ability to um, both create information and, and capture information or, or, or record information in, in forward operating locations, being able to then bring that back to Australia as an example means we have less analysts out in the field. We have less people that we need to forwardly mobilize. Um, and I think that's going to be really important. Uh, and I think that there's a, a, a whole wave of innovation yet to come, um, both around communications, both around storage technologies and federation of, of environments that, that will come out. Um, you know, while in the meanwhile, everyone sort of does their they're, um, they're flexing in the AI ML world and, and quantum. And I sort of think about that. Of, it's uh, the, best, the best analogy I have is um, uh, like concept cars and then what we drive today, right? Concept cars is these beautiful, amazing, oh, yeah, we could do this thing. And you see beautiful ones from Porsche and Mercedes and all of these guys. But, you know, when you go down the dealership, that's not what you get, right? <laughs> and, and I think there's that sort of reality of, Hey, we've always got to keep looking forward, and there's some amazing things that are that are coming. But I, I think the real innovation is just going to be making things faster, smaller, um, without these huge uh, pun the pun quantum leaps in technology. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks very much. Very much appreciated having the discussion and your insights on, uh, as well as your descriptions on what's going on with cloud and so on. So, thanks very much for coming on the show. Great, thanks a lot, Grant. Appreciate it. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.